Hi, you're listening to Your Best with my nanny, Kathy Weckworth. Hi, this is Kathy Weckworth, Executive Director of Best Life Ministries, and you're listening to Your Best, a motivational, inspirational 30 minutes that will help you want to be your best. Today's topic is formulating your own decision. Friends, thanks for listening to the show. The days as of late have been pressing us to figure out how we think and feel about things, what our opinion is about different topics and where you and I stand. Lately, we've looked at opinions on our world. Opinions like going to war, carrying guns, whether or not marriage includes marrying inanimate objects like a train station or a computer, both in the news, human trafficking, GMO in our foods, cloning, abortion, and building walls. In the world of faith, we've been pressed to look at traditional values and morals, what marriage and the right to life look like, as well as our history of believing in God and the Trinity. Each and every day brings another trial, another challenge, and another push to make you aware of what you believe. Now, stating what you believe is an entirely different show, but for today, we're going to stick with how do you make your own decision and stick to it? I remember back when I was at grade school, there was a lovely, bright student, we'll call her Jill, who was in my grade. Jill was outspoken, nerdy, geeky, and really talented musically. When it came time for our school musical, I tried out with Jill. It never bothered me that she was different. Good grief, I was different. With incredibly strict parents, I never smoked, drank, danced, went to movies. Life was definitely different. Although people never got mean about the fact that I abstained from everything, they were mean to Jill about her oddities. I felt very sad for her every single day. Behind the scenes, no one knew, not even me, what her life was like. But every day at school, they bullied, made fun of her, and laughed at her. Jill's mother was an excellent seamstress. I remembered how she created a fabulous matching outfit for both of us to wear at the tryouts. We sang our song and immediately were in the event. Many children didn't make the cut. The night of the performance, I heard over and over, Your song is good, but you should have been on your own. Don't ever be seen with that weirdo, they said. I felt hurt for my friend. After all, she was nothing but kind to me. I look back now at the schoolmates and their opinions. Not everyone was unkind, as some had patience or some ignored her. The interesting thing, one of the most vocal against my friend, was someone who had been bullied in his own younger days. Obviously, the lesson didn't stick. It's interesting how at times those who have been hurt like to hurt others in the same way. Bottom line, Jill's life was chaos at home, a mentally disturbed brother, a challenging sister, and parents that were different themselves. There wasn't a lot of money in their family, and there certainly didn't seem to be a lot of good things either. No one looked behind the scenes. No one looked around the angles and corners. Instead, they heard what other people said. And by others, I mean power brokers, you know, the pushers, the bullies, the ones who said, go with me on this or you're out. Or even, go with me on this or I'll make your life miserable. I didn't go with them. They didn't make my life miserable. If they did well, I would have managed to make my way through it. I wasn't giving in to bullying. You see, I wanted to make my own decisions. I wanted to look at the situation myself. Why did they mistreat her? Why did they not like her? Why did she act the way she did? I prayed about it. I thought about it. I looked around, studied it, and came to my own conclusions. I wouldn't be in on it. It didn't make me popular but I really didn't care. My friend Jill grew up and went on into a profession that helps people every day. 
She loves others, and other people who made fun of her, well, some are doctors, lawyers, teachers, homemakers, and some have passed away. It's life. But I made my choice, and I stood behind my decision. My opinion was different from many. Now, that didn't make me afraid. It didn't make me bad. It didn't make me good. It didn't make me anything. I just knew who I was and what I was going to choose to do. In life right now, what are you basing your opinion on? Truth and facts? Hearsay and emotional jargon? Are you allowing bullies to pressure you, or are you standing firm wherever it may be in how you feel, what you think, who you care about, what you believe in? It's not easy all the time, but it is worth it. Be true to you. Be true to God. Be true to God's word. Well, speaking of opinions, today we're going to spin off of this subject about making up your own mind. I'm going to be chatting with Brian Haynes, Museum Director from Painesville, Minnesota's Historical Society. Brian is an expert on the 1862 Sioux Uprising, and we're going to hear a little bit about a bloody battle between Indians and Swedish immigrants. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Now, friends, when I went out to the museum to do a little research on my cabin that I bought from Painesville, Brian was there. What an incredible place. You're going to want to go visit, and we're going to talk about that at the end of the show. But I do want to just mention that I have never, ever met anybody that was so incredibly knowledgeable and such a great storyteller. So I said, you need to be right here on the show with me. So, Brian, when you first started digging into this topic about... Um, the whole thing that happened, and this is right in our area, correct? That's correct, yeah. Okay, so did you have an opinion one way or another on the storyline? My opinion kind of went from being um, kind of kind of black and white, if you know what I'm saying. Yes. You know what I'm saying? One person's to blame. Right, one side or the um, other, yep. Exactly. It kind of went from that to uh, to more seeing the shades of gray, with the whole situation yes. between the Dakota Indians and sure. the uh, and the settlers in in Minnesota, and just to, just to make a point, back in the fifties, sixties, you know, you know, really until about the seventies and eighties, when somebody would talk about the Sioux uprising, and uh, and just let me make clear, I, I call it the Sioux uprising versus the Dakota War, which okay. is the more PC sure. version of it, because I don't want anybody to misunderstand and think Absolutely. that the. Uh, uh, North Dakota invaded Minnesota. Sure, <laughs> sure. Like that. And, and um, really, Brian, we want you to go ahead and launch into the story, but finish your thought right now and then okay. launch right in and tell us all about it, okay? Right. For, for a long period of time, when, when it was studied or when it was uh, talked about or written about, there was a sense to make the, the natives out as, as savages. You know, it was, um, it was all they're doing. They slaughtered innocent men, women, and children on the frontier, and, you know, they, they were wrong for that. Um, today, there's a sense to look at it the other way, that the white settlers and that the U.S. government caused this and the uh, natives really had their hands tied and, you know, rose up and started this war because they had no choice, and, and they're really kind of justified in, in their actions there. Well, the more I studied it, the more I realized that, you know, that's really not the case. There were, there were so many factors on both sides that led to this, and in many ways it was, it was almost an unavoidable kind of uh, war, kind of a conflict. So that's kind of how my opinion had changed, sure. you know, the more I studied it. Right, and, and um, that's how it changed for me when I started asking you, tell me what you know, 
and you gave me both sides of the story. So launch in and tell us what happened, when did it happen, how did it start? It started in August of 1862, but really, you could say the beginning of this whole conflict goes way, way back. All the way back during the fur trade, um, during a time when the, uh, the Sioux in Minnesota and white explorers and fur trappers started working with each other. Um, the fur trade was valuable uh, job or, or career to do. And in Minnesota, the natives made up a lot of the, uh, the trappers themselves. You didn't have quite as many white trappers coming into the area. Most of them were agents that were trading for the furs and then bringing them back east. Well, the Dakota Indians basically got rich off of this program, um, off of this uh, fur exchange, fur trade. By doing so, by becoming so wealthy, they're, they're able to procure European or you know, American goods, um, weapons, ammunition, blankets, dry goods, all, kind, all kinds of different goods that they had never had before that really allowed them to become even more powerful, basically. They uh, kind of became dependent, and what happens is the fur trade bottoms out. The fur is not valuable anymore. And the uh, natives in Minnesota, both the Ojibwa and the Dakota, they've come so dependent on this uh, fur trade economy that they have nothing to uh, supplement their income anymore. So in order to stave off starvation, they start coming into treaties with the U.S. government and basically selling their land. As they sell their land, the government gives them money, gives them goods, and they're able to survive for another decade or so then the fur becomes even less valuable, and so they have to go through it again. Hmm. And so what happens by 1862, this cycle has become so vicious for them that they're on the brink of starvation, they have very little land left, the fur trade is basically non-existent at this time, so they really have no source of income, and they're kind of left sitting saying, hey, what, what can we do? We've, we've sold all our land, we can't depend on ourselves. We can't survive anymore. So they enter into another treaty, and it cuts the reservation in half. Everything north and east of the Minnesota River is sold to the uh, United States government, so white settlers can come in, and they have to move to the uh, lower half of the, or I should say the western half of the Minnesota River, of that side of the reservation. So they've lost even more land. The government had promised them money every year, now this is 1862, and we're fighting the Civil War, and so money is scarce because all of our money is being sent down south, basically, to, conf- to fight the Confederates. It's late in coming up north. The, uh, the Dakota on the reservation, you know, they're, they're depending on that money because they need to buy goods from the traders on the reservations. And the traders also are fearing that this money's not coming, so they kind of fuel the rumor that it's not coming. And really, they kind of, the white merchants, create an atmosphere of uh, a fear um, during the fur trade that we're trading with the Native Americans. They have their whole lives invested in this fur trade. So what happens is, if there's no money coming to the Dakota, the Dakota have to buy everything on credit from the traders. Um, if they don't have any money to buy it, then the government has to get give them the money to buy it. And so what happens is it really kind of creates a a welfare state, basically. Yeah, sounds like a vicious circle. 
Yeah, very, very much so. So the the traders also the traders knowing that the government's always going to be bailing out the Dakota, they inflate their prices and they start selling inferior goods. If you go back to the fur trade, when it was first starting, the uh, merchants that were coming into Minnesota they were giving valuable goods in exchange for valuable goods. It was a very fair program. As more whites started pouring into the area, and new merchants were taking order over they kind of became greedy knowing that the government was always going to bail out the Dakota when they were in trouble. So if the traders made enough noise, the government would come and bail out the Dakota, and that's what happened. Well, so we fast forward to 1862, and the money's not coming, and the traders are fueling these rumors that it's not going to come because it's all going down south. Basically, the Dakota are saying enough is enough, and there's there's whispers of war at this time already um, before the actual uprising started. A lot of the leaders know that, you know, hey, this is these are just rumors. We just need to settle down. We just need to keep doing what we're doing. We can't bite the hand that feeds us because that's the only link we have to survival. Part of the uh, response to this problem is the uh, agents and the people in Washington say, well, let's set up a system where we can basically train these natives how to farm so they can become self-sufficient and we can kind of start cutting back on this, basically a welfare program. Some of the Dakota are very, very into this and they enthusiastically join the ranks of what was called the farmer movement. Others, not so much because it goes against their traditional values and they wanted to remain as they had been for thousands of years. Now, with this program, the government would give them a house, uh, they build them a house, they would give them livestock, they would give them tools, and they would even send people in to train them how to farm with modern techniques. So anyway, there, there is this program to, uh, to help them out. But before the program can really take a good foothold, what happens in August of 1862 is there are four men, Dakota men, and they are out on a hunting trip. And they are near Acton, Minnesota, which is kind of close to the Grove City, Litchfield area. And while they're there, they're coming along a fence line, and they're, they're hungry. I mean, these people are starving, and they find some eggs okay. in a nest along the fence. Mm. And one of the men takes the eggs. He's going to eat them. And another one says, hey, hey, you can't do that. Those belong to the white man that lives in this farm over here. What's agreed upon is that there was a kind of a dare between these men to... Uh, go up to the house and just show how brave they really are, how much they're not afraid of that white man living in that house, that he's not afraid to steal those eggs. And so what happens is they go up to the house and they're acting tough. The guy who owns this house, which also doubles as a store, he goes outside and he talks to them. Um, The uh, natives turn around and they shoot the guy. Um, They shoot his wife who's inside. They shoot his daughter. There were people... Staying on the farm, they shoot those people. Um, they realize what they've done, so they hitch up a wagon to some horses and they hightail it back to the reservation. Once they get to the reservation, they, they tell of, of what just happened. Since there's already been whispers of war and there's already people starving, a lot of the, the younger men on the reservation say, well, let's go to war. Now's the time that we can take the entire valley back. We can take our land back because all of the soldiers are down south fighting the war. On the frontier, there are no men of fighting age left because they've all gone down south, so it's just young boys and old men and women and children. So the chiefs of this village where where these four men came from, 
they say, well, you know, yeah, let's do this, but we have to get support from, you know, a, a real leader. Um, we can't win this war by ourselves. So they go to the village of Little Crow, which is on the uh, Lower Sioux Reservation by the Minnesota River. And they go there, and Little Crow is, basically, he's mad. He's like, look what you started. We can't win this war, even though the soldiers are down south. If we start killing white people, those soldiers will stop fighting and come up and kill us. And there's way more of them than there are of us. Now, Little Crow was a very, very smart man. He had been to Washington. He was very articulate. He could read. He could write. He went to Episcopal uh, church services very often. Um, he had just actually joined this farmer movement that was going on, so his people were kind of split on him, but he was still very influential. He had also, at the same time, lost a lot of his influence by joining this farmer movement and by taking part in selling their land. So I think, and a lot of historians would agree here, that he saw this as an opportunity to regain some of that lost influence. If he leads this war against the white settlers his people will start following him. And he would rather be known as a leader than not be known known as all. So in a way, he, he had a little bit of an ego. Sure. And I really think, and like I said, there's others who would agree that that's why he led this war. So what happens the following day? The following day, Little Crow and a large band of men, fighting-aged men, they go down to the uh, reservation agency, and this is where all of the trade merchants and everybody and the, the storehouses, blacksmiths, it, it, in a way it's a white community within the reservation. They go down there, they surround all the houses, the stores, and they start shooting. Basically kill everybody, they set all the buildings on fire, they take the goods, and they go back to the village and they distribute everything, and then they go on to the next place. They go down to the ferry that crosses the Minnesota River, um, they ambushed a column of troops that were headed from Fort Ridgely down to the reservation to kind of quell what they just assumed was a band of drunken Indians at the time. They were mistaken. It was hundreds and hundreds of yeah. Dakota men who were they were looking to take back what they felt was theirs. And from that point, it, it just it just builds and builds. There's a few major battles where little um, little crow commands a huge, huge force. Um, he attacks Fort Ridgely but fails. They attack New Alm but fail. And, and the main reason they failed was because the uh, Dakota force was unwilling to fight as a unit. They, they would go into the houses, they would, uh, and a lot of these settlers they knew personally, and the settlers counted them as friends because although there are a lot of settlers in Minnesota at this time, there are also a lot of Dakota Indians, and a lot of these settlers are living close to the reservation, and uh, there's not a lot of other people around, so their neighbors are the Dakota Indians. So anyway, these uh, bands, they would go into the house. A lot of times they would get invited inside of the house, and this is during the first couple of days when nobody really knew what was happening. They would basically kill the entire family. When you think about that, Brian, you know, just hearing the story. So you set it up with, here's here's the white people, here's the Indians. You know, it's their property that people are coming in to take over the the government's got them set up kind of to lose it really makes it even though you feel terrible because all of the people were slaughtered it kind of right. opens your eyes up a little bit more to a motivation that the indians would have you know and makes it a little bit more understanding when you think about how awful the whole story is 
you know, did you come to a place you said you kind of felt more like you lived in the gray area? Is that because you feel like you understand a little bit of both sides? You could say that. And what really, what really sticks to me as saying there's, there's a gray area here is that, um, and Little Crow actually, he had said this at the initial um, hearing of the news of what's going on when the, when the natives first come to him, and he said, you cannot wash blood off your hands with blood. Right, and, and that's really the that's really where that puts me in the gray area because yes, these natives were absolutely um, wronged in a way. They 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 were wronged by um, the, these merchants that were, you know, pulling the rug out from underneath them that were selling them inferior trade goods right. at inflated cost to a point where the money that the government was giving the natives wasn't even enough to cover their debts. They would pay their debts and still be in debt at the sure. end of the year. Sure. Very, very oh. sad and really hard. Oh, yeah. And so when all of that came about, do you have any idea how many lives were lost total of just people, you know, Indians? Oh, and there's, um, as far as the Dakota, there are not um, any really... Uh, how can you say viable source to say how many of them died? Um, as far as I'm actually just googling it right now. As far as uh, as whites who died, um, I believe it's up to around 800 people off okay. the frontier who. So who that died. was a lot of people. And tell yeah. me the name of the war again that you said. I call it this. What's the What's the name of the war that you call the 1862 war? It was um, for the longest time. It was called the Sioux Uprising. Okay. Um, many now call it the Dakota-U.S. conflict, and like I said, for, for politically correct reasons. Yeah. I still call it the Sioux Uprising just sure. because more people understand what I'm talking about when, okay. I, when I use that term. Um, so what would, you, what would you hope that people could take away from knowing about the story? I mean, something that happened, my producer John said that, you know, from his history of, of Hutchinson, there was a lot of death and murder, you know, in that area as well. So what would you hope that people would take away from hearing both sides of the story? Um, you know, it's a lesson that I think is very pertinent to what's going on today in America with our history, um, because the Sioux Uprising has been very politicized through history um, with different sides, you know, saying who's right and who's wrong um, today. And I think you can use the Confederate statues yes. as an example. Sure. There's a very black and white argument that people use. You know, they have these, the Confederacy fought for slavery and the Union didn't. But there's more to the story. There and, is and once you really start digging into it, you're, what you're doing is you're putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing it from their point of view. Right. When I look at the Sioux Uprising, no, these natives didn't deserve what happened to them. But that family out at West Lake didn't deserve what happened to them. They had nothing to do with it. They That's were right. just looking, you know, they, they were just trying to survive. Exactly, exactly, and and great points. So let's talk for a minute about the fabulous Painesville Museum. You guys have done an incredible job out there. I told my daughter today she needs to take my granddaughter out there. You have a beautiful old church, a great old schoolhouse, and then you have this wonderful building. And when you walk in, you get to kind of look at some really neat, interesting items. But then it's like you open the doors and the room goes, ah, it's just fabulous. <laughs> you walk back there and it's like walking downtown Painesville from 1900. 
um, you've done a lot of work to make that look like separate little uh, stores and, you know, barbershop. Tell us a few things that people would see if they came out to visit you. Well, when you first walk into the museum in the main building, we we have a timeline that um, tells you a little bit about Painesville history, um, state history, and world history. Um, you follow the timeline, and of course, there's lots of artifacts along the timeline that you can look at. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then when you are finished with the timeline, and then you go into the back to the village, which is what you were just describing. The village is. Like you said, it's a replica of what Painesville looked like in about 1900, kind of that Victorian age. And you walk in, and there's a hotel and saloon, and there's an old firehouse with an old 1923 REO Speedwagon fire truck in there. And then, you know, and there's a garage with an old Model T in there, and there's a livery stable, and a general store, and a drug store, and a blacksmith, and they are all completely furnished. Um, some of them you can walk into. Um, some of them you can't walk into. We have them blocked off. Um, but these are all very Painesville-centric kind of uh, artifacts that have been collected through the years, and all of them are uh, period pieces to that Victorian era. So it's uh, it, it's really a nice setup in there. Um, we do a kind of a spring gala every year. Um, last year we did a Roaring Twenties party, Fun. and so it was great, great to be able to have this Victorian village back there. We yeah. we we served some you know some appetizers, and we even we even served a few drinks, some beer and some wine from behind the bar, and it was a really a great atmosphere. But yeah, the village is. I don't think you can get a feel for what a what a small town was like in the 1900s that in any better place than that's that right. village back there. I, I totally agree. I think that's so great. So Brian, what are the hours for your museum there? We are open Monday through Friday from 10 to 3. And what is the cost? It is a free will donation. It doesn't Perfect. cost you a dime. Perfect. That's so wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about this whole um, big thing because for me, I just agree. I think right now today, people are formulating opinions, whether it's about history or today, and it's getting blurred and blocked because of bullying, because of not really looking at all the angles. And so I think it's important to learn from our past. So Brian, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Friends, where do we formulate our opinions from? Where do we find our knowledge? Proverbs 1-7, written by whose scripture deemed the wisest man ever, King Solomon, wrote, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. How do you and I get wisdom? How do we get to be wise on subjects we don't know anything about? Do we dig into the facts and determine for ourselves? Or do we figure out what other people are saying and just go with that? Recently, I read in a city newspaper that our president deemed the recent shooting in Las Vegas as pure evil. It was. It was a horrific crime that happened to men, women of all nationalities, religious beliefs, political views, all ages, and from all over the country. 58 people killed and over 500 wounded. And the newspaper article, politicians and bystanders asked him, what's pure evil mean? Really? Really? Well, Webster's Dictionary says evil is this profoundly immoral and wicked behavior. It was sin. God says, thou shalt not murder. 
how do you answer the question? We look at God's word for how to answer any question. It's the manual for driving on the road of life. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, reject every kind of evil. Isaiah 32.6 says, for fools speak folly. Their hearts are bent on evil. They practice ungodliness and spread error concerning the Lord. But what happens when we look at all the pieces that took place? It doesn't give us the end result. We have to look at all of the pieces. So people died in the end. People died in Brian's story. It was sad. It was pure evil. Next time you're determining your opinion, think about what's behind that determining process. Are you being bullied? Are you just taking for granted what people are saying? Are you checking it out? I think about my friend Jill. She was on the side of a minority. She spoke of love and how Jesus died for her. And she gave love, but people didn't like that. Oh, it sounds like a friend of ours from Scripture named Jesus. Where do you stand today? Wherever it is, make sure you think, pray, seek, and research before you so proudly pick your decision. God's watching. Let me pray with you. Dear Jesus, we're overwhelmed on every side in today's world. It's discouraging and depressing to see so many people being hurt, bullied, abused, challenged, and threatened. And yet we remember that we are in good company as Jesus. You are all of those things and you are perfect. Help us not to jump to conclusions, but to make up our minds, not follow those who are the loudest voices, but help us to follow your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it on iTunes and please give us a favorable review so that other people can listen to the show and enjoy it as well. For more encouragement and hope, log on to our website at bestlifeministries.com. And for more information about me, you can log on to kathyweckworth.com. Hey, thanks for being with us today. And until next time, I encourage you to go out and be your best. Best life, help all